Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, the founding partner of Core VC, Ariane's an established fintech investor with a passion for improving society. Every Sunday morning, when I sit down to think about what I want to say here, in between playing, feeding, and putting down for a nap, my eight-month-old daughter, I never have any clue what I want to say. This morning was particularly trying. My wife went to a workout class at 8.30, leaving me to feed Elle some oatmeal, play with her until 9.15, and then put her down for a nap. It was all going smoothly until 9.20 when she was asleep in my arms and I was about to make that delicate transition to the crib when she proceeded to throw up all over herself, the crib, and me. Fuck. Now what do I do? My wife's not here for help, so it was daddy's time to shine. I put her in a little bath, got her cleaned up, ripped the sheets off the bed, put new ones on, got her in some new clothes, and after just about a 25-minute delay, as I record this, she's sleeping soundly although her room is a mess. I'll let mom deal with that. Like anything else in life, the more I think and stress about what I want to say here, the harder it is to think of something. Like when all you do is think about getting a new job or finding a girlfriend or raising money for your startup, I found that it's not until you step back or find a different path does the good stuff usually happen for you. Like getting money for pay club. The checks we have gotten have come from places that I never thought they would. And the people that I thought were sure things to invest, they never ended up coming in. It's funny how the universe works like that. It always comes from where you least expect it. I'm not saying that you don't have to hustle, that you can just sit back and and let things come to you. That's definitely not the case. What I am saying is that once you're in the middle of the hustle, talking with as many people as you possibly can, really putting yourself out there, that things will start to happen for you. It just won't be from where you expect it to come from. I tell people that the main theme of this podcast, or at least my main takeaway, is that nobody has a grand plan for their career. I've been super lucky to be able to speak with a lot of just immensely accomplished people. And one thing that they all share in common is that they never planned to be doing what made them successful. What they did do was focus on things that they could control, working hard, putting themselves in positions to see the best opportunities. And then they had to sit back and let the universe take care of the rest. That's an encouraging message. You don't know what you want to do or have your life quite figured out. Just work hard and the universe will figure itself out. Uh, So yeah, work hard, be a good person, and things can work out for you. The only problem is that how do you know it will be okay for you? You don't, and you're never going to know that. All you can do is hustle as hard as you can 
and get better every day. Okay, let's get into the interview. Ariane Schutte, I said that correct? You did. Okay, where's that from? Uh, I'm Dutch. Uh, Ariane was the only name that both my parents could agree on. My mom is Persian, my dad is Dutch, and Ariane is, is a name in both. Um, and Schutte is, is Dutch. Although there's a umlaut on the U which suggests it's German, um, but it isn't. Okay, well, we're in your office in Hollywood. This is the first podcast I've done in Hollywood. Usually, most of the L.A. startup stuff is in Santa Monica. True. This is Hollywood and Vine, no less. Yeah. Downtown, it used to be downtown Hollywood. A hundred years ago, Charlie Chaplin had his office in this very building. Uh, and now, it's still a mishmash of entertainment companies and core VC. Very cool. So... I'd love to hear what Core VC is, and then we'll get into your background and how you became a VC in, at Hollywood and Vine. Okay. Uh, so Core is a venture capital firm. We invest in early stage financial technology companies that we think will transform the lives of everyday people. Uh, so typically it's fintech, typically it's early stage. Uh, we'll bet on anyone from two guys in mom's garage to a company that's revenue or EBITDA creating and their businesses, in all cases, either directly or indirectly impact the lives of what we call everyday people, in some cases underserved people. Our passion is really to invest in stuff that we think um, can make hard lives a little easier by saving people money, by helping them earn more money, by managing their risk better, things like that. So do you have a, an example of a company that, that you can tell us about? Sure, many examples. Yeah, we've done about 40 investments over the, couple, over the years. Um, so an example that I, uh, I'll give you a direct-to-consumer example and a, and a B2B2C example. So uh, Opportune is a uh, lender that lends money at one-tenth the price of a payday loan. Their, their customers are, under, are underbanked, um, don't typically have a FICO score, um, and at a payday lender they would be paying somewhere four or five hundred percent APR not building a credit score, often getting stuck kind of in the cycle of debt. Uh, Opportune, on the contrary, charges one-tenth of that, doesn't allow for a rollover of the loan, re uh, reports the rent to the credit bureaus so you're off better than you were when you started it, um, and um, you know, now has grown to uh, lend uh, you know, multiple billion dollars a year, is in a number of states, expanding from branch bases to mobile only, um, and we hope will go public soon. That's a company we're really proud about, and they, they see themselves as both commercial and mission-driven, much in the way that we do. Uh, a totally different example is a company called Synapse. Synapse FI um, is basically what Stripe is for merchant card acceptance, but for banking. So if you're a programmer and you want to write a little app, you need to accept a credit card. Stripe has really wonderful, uh, well-documented, easy-to-use APIs that allow you to build uh, credit card acceptance in. Um, Synapse is building out a whole set of really well-documented, friendly APIs to build all kinds of banking functions on top of. So the ability to open a bank account, the ability to move money in and out, the ability to do KYC, and all, all, all these kind of basic block blocks of banking, they make API available so that then if you and I were to want to invent some new way to help people save or some 
or, or a new insurance product or an, insur- or an investment product, we'd build it on top of their APIs. Yeah, we looked at building our group payments app on top of SynapseFi, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, really cool. So let's let's hear how you get involved in one of these companies, like Opportune or SynapseFi, for, ex- for example. What point did you write your check to them? How much money had they raised? Where were they in their business cycle? Very different for those two. Typically, we try to catch founders as early in their journey as possible. So from the idea, um, whenever we can, we tell our team every week we want the option to say no, and we want to, to, to everything that we see in fintech, and we try to catch people as early, 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 even well before we can write a check. Uh, the nature of venture investing is such that hot teams, when they court VC, it's as small of an interaction as possible, and it's almost, it's so difficult to discern who's a team that has a pretty deck and who's a, and who's a team that can actually build something. Yeah. And the reverse, I'd argue, as well. Like, you know, they don't know if I'm awesome or an asshole, and they're going to have me on their board for a decade um, if they're successful. So we try to build a relationship with entrepreneurs as early as we can. And uh, in Opportune's case, you know, we met the founder um, in, when he was still at Stanford at, 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 uh, at the business school, and he had the idea and tried to make ourselves useful. This is even before Core existed. Um, and I was doing some other stuff that was related. We'll talk about that later. Um, and then we didn't, we invested a little bit very early. And then when Core came around, we invested when the new CEO came in and they started their current growth trajectory. In Synapse's case, very similar actually. We got to know, one of our VPs got to know the CEO when he was still in his dorm room in Memphis. And uh, they moved to San Francisco. We kept the relationship, and they basically bootstrapped their way to a significant number of customers. They had 100 customers on board using their software every month by the time they did a, a fairly big Series A that we co-led with Trinity. That's great. So you said something interesting there of discerning between like a pretty deck and a great team that's going to be able to execute on a, on a vision. Are there signs, like ways that you can kind of glean insight into which one's going to be which? Yeah, I I feel like that is that's uh, your job. Yes, indeed, and it is and it is the hardest thing and the greatest thing, uh, the most fun thing about VC is figuring that out. Um, and in many cases, you know, there is no way to tell, but. We try to pattern match for ideas because we're a fintech. We see lots of the same you know, ideas, and we try to pattern match for entrepreneurs. And there's kind of basic, obvious patterns, right? You see, you look for signs of achievement, both academically and professionally. Um, you look for um, uh, evidence of grit. I'm a big fan of of uh, of that book, and you know one of the mm-hmm. one of the clues she gives in the book that that I use all the time when I ask when I talk to an entrepreneurs. Um, apparently, someone's propensity to be successful in high school sports is a very high predictor of their grit later in life. Uh, so, you know, we ask, we have fairly specific questions. We ask people like that um, to really understand who they are as people. The other thing that's really valuable is, uh, again, just watching them, watching them do their thing, right? Like, who, who are the promise keepers? Um, and as few and far between, you know, the, the team that can come in and tell you this is what we're going to do, and six months later when you check in with them, oh, yeah, we, in fact, did this. Um, so being able to actually just look at that is really important. 
Um, the other thing that I find really helpful is, is the, the very simple act of negotiating the term sheet. Uh, because until that point, both parties are courting each other. We're on best behavior, we're all smiles, everything looks great. And then when, you're, when you actually have to negotiate something, you know, the, the premise of your relationship, you can, the, the diversity with which people approach that exercise is astounding. The trouble is that we never, gi we never give people a, a term sheet unless we intend to invest. And so I often say, I wish I could negotiate a term sheet before I needed to negotiate the term sheet. Because uh, you can really see something about a team during that process. Oh, that's so interesting. So, Ariane, the usual path to venture investing is you do a startup. That startup gets venture capital. You see the process. You sell the company. The company fails, whatever. And then you kind of start moving over towards principal investing side. Is, was that the path that you found yourself on? Um, not exactly. Uh, so mine was a more circuitous and more random one. Uh, basically, uh, I, I fell into a startup right out of college. I'd never heard of startup. Uh, I hacked into our grading system in our little college in Portland, Oregon, which is a very easy exercise. Um, but it got me some, you know, like local, local notoriety and like the startup down the hill was building educational software and said, come in and be the local internet guy. This was, this was a long time ago. This is 1993. Uh, and so, you know, I, I knew what I knew what Netscape was, and so that basically got me a job. And then I spent a number of years with them. Then went to the Media Lab at MIT, and uh, was in a couple other venture-backed ed tech businesses. So my passion was really how do you combine technology with something of social utility? Then education seemed like an important one to do. Uh, so it, I, I did that a couple times. Uh, one of those went public, one of them we sold, um, one of them was a total nightmare. Um, and during the last startup, someone gave me a book about Muhammad Yunus. You know who he is? Mm -hmm. uh, Grameen Bank. He started this micro-lending bank in the 70s, and he was making $50 loans to the poorest people on earth, and they, they were defaulting 1% of, of lent capital. And that idea just really blew my mind and turned me on that you could use private sector ideas to make economically empowering loans to people that performed exceptionally well. Uh, and so I was trying to figure out how, how we could do something like that in the United States, and I figured out that micro-lending really doesn't work here for a variety of reasons. Um, and started because I didn't have any ideas in financial services. I didn't know much about financial services. Uh, this is 2004. Uh, and so I met a bunch of hippie bankers in the south side of Chicago who had built a bank in, like, the black ghetto, basically, and decided to, you know, kind of bring modern financial services to a place that only had check cashes and payday lenders. And I fell in love with them and kind of helped them... As we were trying to figure out how do we use technology to scale this, what they're doing. And so we started a little think tank called the Center for Financial Services Innovation, CFSI, which still exists and flourishes today. And the initial idea was like, you know, how do we, how do we bank the underbanked? How do we, you know, make poor people, get them into the financial mainstream and give them access to financial services in a profit-driven fashion versus a philanthropic fashion? And... 
it was one story in particular. Can I tell the story? Yeah, please. That kind of that really turned me on to what we're doing today, and it was our collaboration with Walmart. So um, we worked with Walmart Financial Services for a number of years, and um, now every single after that project, every single teller at every single Walmart is a check casher. Uh, Walmart's the lowest cost check casher in the country, and. Uh, the square feet in Walmart where they offer financial services are the most profitable square feet in Walmart. So that combination of using technology at scale through unusual distribution channels in a for-profit environment to offer lower cost financial services for low-income people who spend a boatload of their meager income on stuff that we all get for free really was like a big aha for me. And so we started making some small angel investments off the side of my desk and Richard Branson bought the first company I invested in like six months later, and so I thought I was a genius for sure. And then I and then raised a million bucks to say, hey, I think there's a thesis here we could invest in, and then spun out a CFSI uh, and started Core. That's that's so interesting. So I want, I want to get more into that, but firstly, you said something there about in your early days at the education, you had a drive for social for bettering society and it's, you you play that out in education space and now you're playing that out in the financial services space where where did that come from yeah i have never quite been able to pinpoint a like an obvious uh starting point to that i'm dutch you know the dutch have uh i guess a long history of you know of thinking progressively about social welfare right like Holland is the place where there's legalized pot and legalized prostitution. So I feel like the Dutch have been historically very kind of forward about embracing our vices. And, you know, like, I think the libertarians here would accuse the Dutch of being socialists. And so, I don't know. Uh, On the other hand, right, like banking has started in Holland. I don't know how to attribute it exactly to my Dutchness, but uh, somehow or other it has been, it's certainly been a persistent feature in my career. Uh, to which I don't have a, you know, an obvious, like, I didn't have like some aha when I was, you know, five. But did you have, you did have an aha that you said, this is important to me. I'm, I want to go execute against this. Like, this is what I want to be doing in my career. Yeah. 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 Very much so. Okay. So that's great. Cause a lot of people don't have that. You know, they're like, oh, I don't, I'm interested in watching Netflix shows, but like, how do I go make a career out of that? You said, I'm, I'm interested in bettering society. This is how I can do that through education, how I can do that through, through fintech. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I like it. And, you know, if, if I had my druthers, we could, we could prove a different model, right? I kind of feel like everyone, everyone wants to do, right? Everyone wants to make the world a better place. But they want, I think everyone wants to make money and then make the world a better place. That's the point. So, indeed, everyone sees that the, what, what, what America models out is go make your money first and then give back. Mm-hmm. And it's a great model. And Americans have done it in amazing, incredible, grand, big ways, right? From Henry Ford to Bill Gates. Um, and, and I don't think we should stop that. I think that's a great thing. Uh, more, more people than not don't end up like Henry Ford or Bill Gates, either in the amount of money that they make or, more importantly, in the amount of money on a percentage basis that they give. Uh, and so we would like to prove out that there's a way to not do these things in serial, but you can do them in parallel. And that you can, in fact, put food on the table and create economic security for your loved ones while you're directly pursuing things that are 
good for society. And we're not the only ones doing this. There's lots of people doing it in lots of different ways. But I kind of feel like the best thing that we can do at Core is invest in a bunch of billion-dollar outcomes to show people that you can do this. Because still, even I talk to young people, and they're like, well, yeah, I'm just going to go take a job at Google or Goldman or whatever, and then I'll come and do like you know my, my world-changing stuff. And I'm like, no, you can do it right now. Do it both at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I had an investor, Shiel Tile, on the podcast, and he was talking about this exact concept. He's like, doing well by doing good. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be... They, don't, they, they can come together. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. It's amazing, though, how on one hand that seems so intuitive and so attractive. On the other hand, how deeply allergic people are to that concept. So I'll give you an example. When I pitch, like, entrepreneurs really connect with our mission. We get into deals because we're mission-driven, into incredibly competitive deals. On the flip side, LPs, our investors, are deeply suspicious of this. Right? I can't tell you how many times I've been like pitching someone and they say, okay, this is all great, Ariane, but like, is this money-making or is this philanthropy? I'm like, no, no, no. And I, it's made, I've, I've come to, I've come to, well, I was kind of skeptical about their skepticism. I've really come to appreciate it because most, most people suck at doing either. Most people are not great at making a ton of money. And most, most people who are trying to do good aren't very good at it either, if you were to just be empirical about it, right? Like we're, society can't judge the do-gooders in the world. Um, but, you know, if you look at how effective most nonprofits are, it's modest at best. Right. Okay, well, that's, that's interesting. So I guess let's get back to the, to the career story here. Sure. So you are at MIT Media Lab, you're doing some education stuff. You're starting to dip your toe into, into financial services. Um, you wrote these few angel checks. Uh, Richard Branson bought, the, bought a company, and yeah, you are a, you're a genius investor, and you say, I, I, can, I, can do this. I, I can do this for a living now. This is, this is how I'm going to give back to the world and make money. Mm-hmm. Was that basically it? Um. Yeah, so, well, well yeah. And then, and then there was, like, some really hard slogs to get that, to pull that off, uh, because I'm not a genius. That that exit was not was not a hundred x. It was a three x. I was pretty amazed by it. But you know, now I'm like, oh, geez, it's nothing. It was on a sixty thousand dollar check. You know, it was like, uh, so you know, enough kind of like it's these like dangerous ideas that get you to do like unreasonable things. Well, you don't you don't know better at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's dangerous to be green, but it's great to be green. But, it's, but, but yeah, it's great and dangerous. So I had no idea what a GPLP structure was. I had no idea, you know, like how to raise money or what the terms would be or that this was a 10 plus 2 or you know, all the things that are kind of like normal and known to me and many other people I had no clue about. And so there was a long period of trying to like raise a fund. I don't have, I don't come for money. I don't know a lot of rich people, or I didn't know a lot of rich people when I started this. And so all of our LPs are institutions, and institutions are slow and conservative. And so there was this, like, punk standing on their, you know, on the front door saying, hey, let's, this was in, this, in, in 2010, when financial services was not that popular, mid-crisis, subprime financial services was not that popular. Uh, and then something that was arguably philanthropic. Like it was like a, it was not an easy pitch, and with someone who had zero track record, that seems like impossible. 
Yeah, it kind of was. It took a long time. It was not pretty. It was like a lot of my banging head against the door. Um, and I, it was finally persuading one guy at Goldman Sachs to, to lead that made everything else tip. Gain that lead investor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then it was still a tiny fund. So it was a $45 million fund was the first one. It's more than I was hoping to raise, but still in the scheme of things, it's, you know, small. But it's, you know, raising money you hear for, for a fund can be really similar to raising money for, for a business. They're both super hard, some of the hardest things you'll do in your life probably. But I think the difference is when you're raising money for a business, someone can say no, because maybe I, I can say I don't, I don't like your business idea. But when they're saying no to your investment, they're, they're basically just saying no to you, right? Yeah. That's hard. Yes. It's a yeah, lot it of sucks. Yeah, it sucks. It sucks. <laughs> but the, the silver lining is, and I often, like now I really believe that GPs at funds should raise their own money uh, because it makes you a better investor. Um, being an entrepreneur also makes you a better investor in that you know that time is an incredibly scarce resource. And to just educate yourself on an entrepreneur's time because you think, because you're curious in what, you know, in their business model or in real estate tech or whatever they're digging deep in is like, is, is a really insufferable kind of indignity. And so I think, you know, as a result of that experience for me and certainly for my partners um, as well, um, we're much more respectful of entrepreneurs' time because we've been there. You know, like we've we've ha we've been we've entertained like associates at funds who just will hear us out in endless meetings to no end or no ability to write a check ever. Right. Yeah. That's that's frustrating. So you can sympathize. Yeah. So we so we commit. To, to not educating ourselves on an entrepreneur's dime, to giving them quick no's, to giving them thoughtful no's that, that has the benefit of our best ideas, however lightweight those might be or, how much, or however disagreeable they might be, we have a real commitment to, you know, to making the process of saying no, which we do way more frequently than we say yes. We say no to about 250 times for every yes we make, um, to do them as thoughtfully and as quickly as we possibly can. Well, that's great. Uh, and so how long has core innovation been in existence? Um, 2011. 2011. Okay. So you've raised, you raised that $45 million fund. Was there, was there, have there been more subsequent funds? Yep. So then a $75 million fund a couple of years ago, and we're just starting our process for the next one. And you're doing what you say. You're doing it yourself. You're eating your dog food. Yep. Sure are. Yeah. No placement agents. We're, we're pounding the pavement. Now it's a lot easier. You have a track record. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Helps a lot. Okay, so Ariane, the, like, the wrap-up question of these podcasts usually centers around advice. And I would say advice for someone who's early in their career, still in college, trying to figure out their place in the world. Maybe like you, they have some driving passion of bettering society. Maybe they're like, I just want to get rich. I have no idea what I'm passionate about. What do you tell someone like that, like in terms of like looking at jobs to take or industries to go into, passions to follow, anything like that? Yeah. Um, my, my advice typically surrounds a couple ideas. A, follow your heart. Do Try to figure out who you are as quickly as you possibly can. And the best way to do that is by interacting with the world. You, you're not going to figure it out in your, in your bedroom. Um, try and build your network as quickly as you can. Um, 
the sad reality is it's who you know, not what you know. Still, we barely live in a meritocratic society. And so build your network as quickly as you can. The easiest way to do that is kind of like what you did, weirdly, uh, which is like have a point of view and, and talk to more senior people than you about your idea or, you know, or ask them about their idea. Um, and it's like a very clever way because everyone loves talking about themselves. Ergo, we're chatting. I, apparently, You've I like talking my to code, myself. <laughs> yeah. So you should be giving the advice. <laughs> um, well, I don't have the I don't have the outcome yet. Once I have the outcome, then yes, then there'll be my book of how to do this. I look forward to reading it. I'll put it on my shelf. <laughs> we have a we have a, this here is modest in L.A. in our San Francisco office. We have a floor to ceiling big library of books about uh, about money, about entrepreneurship, about social change. Um, so we'll add yours to it. Uh, but I think but but it is a great way to get in front of people. Yeah, it's cool. I'm very fortunate. Cause like, look, now look at this, I'm gonna walk away from here and the rest of my day, my brain is gonna be buzzing with like this motivational conversation we got to have and then we'll take this out and put it into the universe and thousands of people will listen to it and their brains will get to buzz and they'll write back to me, what a cool interview. Like it's just, it's good. Right. And, and now you and I are connected, we both live in LA. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll bump into you at Money 2020 and I'll say, hey Ariane, like, I've got a fintech startup now, and you're like, oh, Alex, like, I love it. Let's, let me give you exactly. a couple million bucks, and then we'll both you know, get one of those 100x guys together. So fortunate, I think, is a great attitude to have about that, but it's hustle. Yeah. Everything is hustle. Yeah. Okay. Well, Ariane, this was, this was really fun speaking with you. Thanks for having me in your office. Even though it was a little noisy on Hollywood and, uh, and Vine here, this was, this was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks, okay. Alex. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends about this podcast.